I'm Apollo 16 astronaut Charlie Duke, the 10th man to walk on the moon. And you got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. This is the Space Show, Australia, on 88.3 Southern FM. Well, welcome to the Space Show, which is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. The Curiosity rover has been exploring Gale Crater on Mars for 10 years. We find out what it has been doing since. And students from Monash University describe a rover they built as part of a Mars Society competition. Now we begin this evening's show by picking up from where we left off last week. In this feature from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Curiosity Project Scientist Ashwin Basavada relates his involvement in the Science Laboratory rover. Named Yellowknife Bay, the rover suddenly lost its mind. It's known as the Sol 200 anomaly in the history books that we have. And this was when there was a bug in the software, in fact, multiple bugs, that caused the rover to just start hanging and not responding. And this is always bad when a spacecraft does not respond, especially when they're running off of batteries and they need to sleep to recharge. And so that happened on SOL 200, where the team at JPL realized that the rover was not going to sleep on its schedule and the battery was draining. And this is a case where, as a scientist, I just felt completely helpless. All I could do was basically go home and get out of their way and leave it to the incredibly talented people we have at JPL to use the limited bits that we get from Mars and from the rover to diagnose what's going on. Every hour counted, you know, and so they spent quite a while trying to diagnose it, trying to get curiosity to snap out of it. And in the end, they had to send a command that you don't like to do too much, which is to have curiosity swap over to its backup computer. And so there was a very tense few hours as we waited to see if that swap over to the backup worked. And of course it did. So <laughs> here we are today. That's the closest we ever came to the mission ending. Curiosity's main computer is called the A-side. The backup is called the B-side. The switch to Curiosity's B-side computer had to be made quickly to stop the drain on power, which was happening faster than the RTG could charge the batteries. At the time, the A-side still was functioning with about half its memory, but eventually even that failed. It's scary because we, for many, many years, were running in a mode where if there was some catastrophic failure with the B-side computer, we wouldn't be able to jump over and use the A-side computer again because it was so messed up. And so what the engineers were also able to do was sort of design a workaround to get all of the bad memory that wasn't working partitioned away. And it was about a year or two ago, we uploaded a new software patch that would now allow us to use the A-side computer again, not in its full capability, but as sort of a life raft. 
if anything were to happen, we can jump back now to that computer and diagnose whatever issues might be going on with the B-side. So that was just a huge, huge sigh of relief to be able to have that capability again. Another problem poked up is Curiosity started the trek to the base of Mount Sharp. We noticed that the wheels were really getting beat up much more quickly than we had predicted. When you're designing spacecraft missions, you have to conserve every ounce you can because it's incredibly difficult to get things off of Earth and into space and then land them on Mars. And with the wheels, they're made of pretty thin aluminum and they have these ribs on the wheels that give them some strength. But in between those ribs, it's not particularly thick metal. And there were scratches, but even worse than scratches, there were small punctures and tears in that sheet metal between the ribs. The worst case predictions were that we would not get too high on Mount Sharp before the wheels would just be shredded. And that, of course, created a lot of concern. And yet, it's one of those times when you really enjoy being a part of a great team because it was our little mini Apollo 13 moment where you have to just get everyone's heads together. This is one of the parts I love about this challenge was it took both scientists and engineers to ultimately solve the problem. So there were some very sharp, hard rocks on Mars that we had not seen before in previous landing sites that even though they looked like they were in soil, when the rovers pressed down on them, the rocks didn't budge. They were just like shark teeth sticking out of the ground that the entire wheel and one-sixth of the rover's weight would be balanced on this little pointy rock. The other thing we found out was that the way the software was designed to rotate the rover's wheels in order to move was causing part of the problem itself. The wheels were being rotated all at the same rate, and yet when one wheel encountered a pointy rock and had to take a longer path as it drove, you know, as that one wheel had to climb that obstacle and then go down the other side, the other five wheels were just pushing into that even harder. And so that actually was a little bit of a good story in the sense we found a fixable problem and it also kind of exonerated the people who designed the wheels because we realized that even with those sharp pointy rocks the weight of the rover itself alone would not puncture the wheels so they were designed correctly but when you add that extra push from the other five wheels because of the way that the rover was being driven it was enough to cause those tears and so the engineers here at JPL invented a new algorithm that they call traction control because it's kind of similar to that traction control button on your car <laughs> and your four-wheel drive, and it allows the wheels to more gracefully climb over those obstacles. Ever since we had these issues, we do a survey of the wheels every one kilometer of distance and outline every single puncture and every single tear and measure how they're growing over time, and that helps us know how we're doing. In the worst-case scenario, which I honestly don't think we're headed for anymore at all, but if the wheels continue to degrade, or maybe we turn the corner and there's a field of pointy rocks, and then they get damaged at a higher rate all of a sudden, and the tears in the wheels become so big that entire pieces of metal just start falling off, there are some rings inside the wheels, they call them stiffener, but you can think of them being kind of the shape of a tire underneath the flat sheet metal of the wheels. You can lose like two-thirds of the surface of the wheel. And the one-third that's left, that's very strongly tied to that inner stiffening bracket, would remain. And apparently, you know, you can get some mileage on those things. 
driving on rims. The mission actually has a plan to tear off part of the wheels if need be. So we monitor the grousers, which are those kind of horizontal bars that go across the wheel. And if enough grousers on one wheel break, there is some concern that there might be some metal shards that start to hang out and could cause a short or could cut some of the wires that are connected to the wheel. So if that happens, we do have a sequence that actually allow us to rip off the outer two-thirds of the wheel to get rid of all of those potentially dangerous metal shards. It's pretty nuts. It involves a big rock that you have to drive up to and turn the wheel against the rock to rip this off. And I really hope we never have to use it, but it's also really cool that we could do this if we really needed to. As missions get older and older, I think you really have to start to MacGyver things to use what you have with you on Mars to figure out how to keep things going. And it's very challenging, but also really fun. A transformational event happened in 2015, after Curiosity had reached the base of Mount Sharp. This time, the challenge was the rover's drill. That one was really difficult because the mission is designed around the capability to drill into rocks and put those samples into the laboratories that we have on board. We have this big arm, a seven-foot robotic arm with this heavy 100-pound turret at the end of it, which contains the drill. And you'd basically fix the arm and that big turret against the ground. And then the only thing that would move after that would be the drill bit moving up and down. And so we were drilling a rock one day. It was pretty routine, nothing out of the ordinary. But the motor called the drill feed, which pushes the drill bit down into the rock and does all the work. And that motor just refused to move. And things like that happen, and sometimes they're resolved in 24 hours, and you count to 10, basically, before you really get nervous. But I counted to 10, <laughs> meaning uh, waited a few days, and things weren't improving. And it was really the first time where I was laying awake at home night after night thinking, this could be it. This could be the end of our scientific exploration at Gale Crater. And it gets very dark. The drill mechanism may have stopped working because of a displaced component or debris that had collected from previous drillings. Even though the reason for the motor failure was unclear, mission engineers looked for ways to get Curiosity drilling again. This team had to figure out, with the hardware that's on Mars, how can we still get the drill to move in and out of the ground and to deliver a sample into the laboratories in a way that it was not designed to do at all? We've never tested it. We're not even sure it's possible. We might break something else if we try to do it without that motor. But in about a year and a half, they spent figuring out, inventing creative ways of doing it, testing it with the spare rover, the engineering model rover that we have at JPL, and then reinventing the whole engineering process, the software, the commands. And then on the science side, we reinvented the way we would analyze the samples because we could no longer use the same processing system we had to sieve the samples, for example. Now what we end up doing is the arm moves up and down to do the drilling. And it may sound simple, but when the arm wasn't designed to take those stresses of drilling into rocks using the arm motors themselves, the shoulder and the elbow and all that sort of thing, it just was not clear at all it was even going to be possible. And would we break the arm entirely by trying it? But fortunately, we have incredibly creative engineers 
And I think there's a bit of luck involved that in the way that it was designed, this kind of new approach was possible. And now we've actually drilled more holes and analyzed more samples with this new technique than we did before. The SAM instrument that examines these drilled bits of rock is also sensitive to a mystery on Mars that comes right out of thin air, an occasional whiff of methane. I think the methane is one of the most puzzling and one of the coolest discoveries that Curiosity has helped to further. And the more we learn about it, we continue to have more and more questions. So methane is a gas that can be created through a variety of processes, some of which don't require life at all. You can have water that interacts with rock, that the reaction that happens when that interaction occurs forms methane. But you can also have methane that forms as a byproduct of life. And a decade or so ago, telescopic observations from Earth suggested that the atmosphere of Mars contained methane. And so that, of course, was very exciting because of the potential that this could be a byproduct of life. It could also be a byproduct of geology, but either of those mechanisms are pretty interesting and would teach us something about Mars and the activity of Mars today. And it's been quite a journey trying to figure out if there's methane in the Martian atmosphere. And so Curiosity can measure the composition of the atmosphere really finely. And it searched very carefully for methane. First measurements came up negative. We thought we found methane, but then we realized that it was just residual air from Florida that got caught in the instrument when the rover was packed up on the launch pad. But when that all degassed, we made measurements that looked like there wasn't much methane. But then we figured out a very smart way to enrich the gases that we were pulling in to kind of scrub out the species that might be interfering with our ability to measure methane. And then we started to see very low levels of methane in the atmosphere. And after several Martian years of measurements, what we realized was there was a seasonal variability to these measurements. And we saw methane kind of rise and fall with the seasons, still at this very low level. But then we would also sometimes see these occasional whiffs go by that had really high concentrations of methane. So almost kind of these little spikes blowing past the rover. The spikes seem to be random. They're very puzzling to us. We haven't seen anything that allows us to eliminate hypotheses, if it's by life or if it's by something geologic in the subsurface. Most of the methane on Earth is released by microorganisms as a waste product as they consume organic materials. The carbon and hydrogen molecules that make up that methane eventually are broken apart by sunlight or interact with oxygen to produce carbon dioxide and water. Scientists expected methane to last many times longer on Mars than it does on Earth. But if the spikes detected by Curiosity are evidence methane is being created today through some unknown process, then another unknown process must be destroying that methane fast enough that it doesn't accumulate to higher levels in the Martian air. Another part of this puzzle is that the methane not only varies by season, but by the time of day with the methane only detected at night. We will return on the space show to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, a little later in our show. Lunar Science.
Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Yes, the Space Show is pleased to announce a new 54-part series called Lunar Science. This is not about spaceships and astronauts. It is about the science to be done on and near the Moon during the Artemis Project and the supporting unmanned missions. To find these programs, visit space.southernfm.com.au Then scroll down until you see the Lunar Science link. Once again, Lunar Science is available online at space.southernfm.com.au Southern FM. The sounds of the Bayside. And now on the Space Show, we go back to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. As scientists use curiosity to get a better grasp of the thin, mainly carbon dioxide Mars atmosphere... Radiation that filters through that atmosphere is eyed by a rover instrument that is, quite simply, rad. It is rad. As an 80s kid, I endorse that completely. So rad, actually, is the radiation assessment detector. We always have to have acronyms. And this experiment was intentionally flown on Curiosity to prepare for human exploration by measuring the radiation that comes from space through Mars' thin atmosphere and then impacts Mars' surface, where astronauts would be, and also, of course, where rovers live. And it's a much more harsh radiation environment than Earth because we don't have a thick atmosphere, we don't have a magnetic field on Mars, we don't have an ozone layer. All those things contribute to the more ultraviolet and, in this case, with RAD, measuring electromagnetic radiation. And so by measuring it, we can actually understand what astronauts are up against and how to shield them while they're on the surface. And so as we've driven higher on Mount Sharp, we sometimes get very near tall hills or canyon walls, and they block out big parts of the sky from the rover's perspective. And that also means they block out that radiation coming from all directions in the sky. And so we were able to measure how effectively rocks on Mars, these canyon walls, can shield astronauts. Like if they were to build their habitat up against the wall of a canyon and shield half the sky, how much would that reduce the radiation that they would have to endure while they were on the surface? Estimates for total radiation exposure for an astronaut on the trip to and from Mars, plus a 500-day stay on the planet, is roughly one sievert. A sievert is a measure of biological radiation exposure and one sievert is associated with a 5% increased risk of developing a fatal cancer. But that exposure estimate is based on how the sun has been behaving during Curiosity's mission. Solar storms from a more active sun 
could briefly double the amount of radiation that washes over the planet. So you can start with what scientists call first principles. I'm just going to write some equations and figure out what the radiation is on Mars. But then until you go and measure it, you don't realize, oh, I forgot to include this, or I had too much of that, or whatever. So what we're doing with RAD is revising these theoretical models based on what we're measuring, when we see the whole sky, when we see part of the sky, when we're in a solar storm, when we're outside of a solar storm, all these things that change the radiation. And what Curiosity is doing and what RAD is doing is helping refine those models that then can be used to predict what astronauts will have to face. These and other discoveries enabled by Curiosity and other Mars missions are necessary if humans are to travel to Mars one day to better prepare for living on a planet that continually surprises us with its sometimes familiar, sometimes alien nature. When you put a spacecraft on another planet, you sort of expect it to be more like Avatar or Star Trek with like fluorescent green plants or whatever. I don't know what, but like something foreign, right? And instead, the thing that strikes me about Mars is really how not strange it is. I sometimes just can't get over the fact that it really is so much like parts of Earth. And as a scientist, I kind of know that's supposed to be true. There aren't different laws of physics on Mars. Earth and Mars are originally made out of very similar materials when they formed. The only difference is that for the past three billion years, Mars really was just cold and windy. Having a two or three billion year time frame when only wind was changing the landscape. On Earth, that's really difficult to find. You might have a really extreme place, like a desert that it rains every hundred years. But even on Earth, when most of the time in a desert, it's just the wind carving things, that hundred year flood, that big storm will come through and it will still modify the landscape significantly. On Mars, those things don't happen. So we've seen rocks that are just being slowly picked apart by sand grains hitting them over a billion years. And you can end up with these extremely delicate rocks where if you just kind of push them, it would all tumble to the ground. Little fairy castles of heavily eroded and weathered rocks. Something you'd never be able to have on Earth because they would get destroyed by an earthquake or a flood or something. As Curiosity continues to climb Mount Sharp, it is essentially traveling forward on a Mars timeline leaving behind older clay rocks to enter into a younger era of sulfates. I feel like this is our last promise that we have to fulfill, which is to explore this clay sulfate transition. That might be a very nice way to wrap up everything we've learned about Gale Crater and Mount Sharp, in the sense that there's this record of lakes that may have lasted for millions of years, creating habitable environments. And then possibly we're about to see the end of all that, when the climate of Mars changed and began that eventual transition to the climate of the next two or three billion years, which is basically dry and cold. So if we can actually interpret that climate change from the rocks that we're seeing now and that we'll see over the next year or two, that will be a nice epilogue on the book we're writing about the history of Mars at Gale Crater. So far, Curiosity has traveled over 17 miles, or 27 kilometers, a distance that includes climbing more than 1,600 feet, or 500 meters up Mount Sharp. So it's 
500 meters off of a five kilometer mountain, so maybe 10% of the way up. In a sense, not very high at all. But on the other hand, almost all of that mineralogical action that I mentioned happens in the very bottommost layers. So we're right where we want to be and pretty far along to where we thought we would ever be actually in terms of how far we'd ever climb. So we've climbed 500. If we get to 700, 800 meters, we will have really passed all of the interesting mineralogy and rock textures that we ever were drooling over before we landed. The satellite-based data that told us that the clays and sulfate were there show very little of anything <laughs> as you get higher up. It just doesn't look as interesting. In fact, sometimes team members will write me and say, let's just turn around and go back down because we've seen so many good things and we had to move so quickly and you know we did the bare minimum while we were there, so let's just go back down and do it all over again. And that's a valid thought, but we have to sort of weigh all these things and figure out the best strategy. Among the thousands of photos taken as Curiosity drove through different areas, there are a few selfies showing the rover standing alone in the vast desert landscape. Its stark white body once contrasted sharply against the muted Martian palette of reds, browns, and grays. But over time, the rover has become so painted with dust, it's starting to blend in and become visibly more Martian. Although we shouldn't expect Curiosity to take a selfie from the summit of Mount Sharp, hopefully this mountain climber will have much more to show us in the months and years to come. We're in extra innings now. Bonus time, however you want to say it, you know. Curiosity was built for two years, tested for six, and we're in year 10. So <laughs> we're loving every minute. We think that the power source we have, the radioisotope thermoelectric generator, should put enough power out to last, it's hard to put an exact number, but let's say five years. That's about the time frame at which we'll be pretty limited on what we can do at the end of that five years. We won't have much power left to drive and drill and that sort of thing. But until then, we're trucking along. What we really are at risk of now is just something catastrophic. You know, parts are wearing out. We do have two of a lot of parts because we have a lot of spare systems, like the one that saved us on SOL 200, but not everything. So every day is a gift and we just keep driving as we can. If all continues to go well, this August of 2022, Curiosity could once again sing happy birthday to itself to celebrate its 10th landing anniversary. But that's not the only song the rover knows. Back in 2011, before Curiosity had left Earth, an as-yet-unreleased song by the musician Will I Am was added to its computer. After the rover landed, Curiosity sent us that song as part of its radio communications, the first song ever transmitted from Mars to Earth. Trapped, 
And that feature came courtesy of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is in Pasadena, California. This is the Space Show. Now, more about that song. Just when you thought Will I Am couldn't get any cooler, he goes and takes over outer space. Not content with performing here on planet Earth like most of our favourite celebrities, Will I Am will debut his latest single on, wait for it, Mars. Yes, that's it, a planet not known for its music venues, sound systems, or ambient temperature. But believe it or not, it's actually happening. The voice judge has teamed up with NASA, who will play his new song on the surface of the red planet at seven tonight. Aptly enough, the track is called Reach for the Stars. And if you're wondering how this feat of creativity will actually happen, NASA's Curiosity rover, which landed on Mars at the beginning of the month, will blare the song through its speakers to, um, a pile of rocks. Will I Am says he's blessed to have had his song chosen and the track's been described as a note to the singer's passion for science, technology and space exploration. Say 
Southern FM. On air and online via the free Community Radio Plus app. Download it now from the App Store or Google Play. In March of 2019, the Space Show was a guest of the Moon Village Association at Deacon Edge, which is in Federation Square right here in Melbourne. Here is what happened there. Hi everyone, my name is Henry Lowry and I'm the current team lead at Nova Rover. Uh, we're a student team from Monash University and on my right here is Daniel Ricardo, not the uh, F1 driver, but the uh, science team lead from our team. So he's in charge of the subsystems which are involved in taking a sample of dirt from the ground and analysing it for life essentially. We'll touch more on that later. But um, So we build Mars rovers to compete in university competitions and we're hoping to attend our second in May this year. Henry, Henry sort of touched on everything. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're all uni students from Monash University and um, we, we do build Mars rovers, which is very exciting and we are hoping to return back to America. Hi, everyone. It is our absolute pleasure to be here with you at the Forum on the Moon and we'd like to uh, take the next few minutes to describe what we do, what we've achieved and how our work might be applicable to mining and robotics on the lunar surface. Although much of our research and work is conducted with the Martian surface in mind, many of the techniques and knowledge gained is useful in this lunar context. The Nova Rover team was formed by five students out of a garage in Murrumbina at the start of 2017. We have now grown to 33 Monash students who collaborate to build Mars rovers to compete at the University Rover Challenge, or URC for short. We encompass a wide range of disciplines ranging from geology and biochemistry to mathematics and aerospace engineering. Behind me is a picture of some of our team out on a field test in April 2018 with our 2018 competition rover, affectionately known as Rovi. We have our 2019 Rovi over on the right-hand side of the stage. Please approach us at any time during the lunch break or after this talk. We'd love to tell you more about it. So the URC is comprised of four tasks. 
The first two, equipment servicing and extreme retrieval, rely on the dexterity of the robotic arm as well as the manoeuvrability of the rover's chassis to complete tasks which simulate assisting an astronaut on an extraterrestrial. The third task, autonomous traversal, is quite self-explanatory. The rover has to autonomously navigate to a set of GPS coordinates which approximate the location of a visual marker. Onboard computer vision then has to locate that visual marker to a, a tighter threshold. The science task is the last task and is what is most applicable to our application today. The science module, at least part of it, of the 2019 rover is fitted on the front of the rover over there, and so that makes up the majority of that task. So it requires subsurface drilling to acquire a sample of regolith, which is to be tested for extent or extinct life. These tests are to be done on board the rover, and our team uses a variety of spectroscopic analyses to do this. The URC is the most technical university rover competition in the world and attracts the most talented and driven student teams. So in March 2018, we were notified that we were successful in our bid to compete in the 2018 competition. This qualified us as the only Australian team and only team from the Southern Hemisphere competing in the 2018 competition. We are absolutely ecstatic to receive this news, being such a young team, only formed uh, a year and a few months before that. We were able to finish in 14th place out of a total of 96 teams, which has given us the drive to continue our efforts and perform even better this year. The team has been hard at work over the past seven months, designing, manufacturing and assembling the 2019 rover that you can see on my right. We are currently awaiting the results of our 2019 system acceptance review, which basically decides whether we will be attending the 2019 competition. Okay, so I'm oh, sorry, right? um, I'm going to be tying that all together about why is this relevant and why are we at today's talk. So um, I'm a big sci-fi nerd and I love reading sci-fi books and seeing sci-fi movies. And I think this book by Andy Weir Artemis and the lovely movie Moon is really topical because they explore in amazing detail mining, exploration, um, and basically setting up uh, colonies or establishments on the, on the lunar surface. And this is really interesting because they go into a lot of detail and they even show lovely photos and videos of large autonomous rovers, or these are harvesters. And um, being a nerd and being a part of a rover team, rather than you know, being lost in the wonder of it, I broke it down and I said, okay, so what can these rovers do? Um, and they require basically four um, key aspects. They need to be autonomous because they are on the lunar surface, so if something goes wrong, or um, we can't really rely on an operator to drive them constantly. They need to obviously have some sort of mining cap capability. So this may either be um, geographical field mapping, using like ore exploration, looking at the lunar surface about where the best place to go harvesting is, or of course using large drills or harvesters to sort of get resources out of the lunar surface. Then of course it needs to be robust. The lunar surface is extremely hostile. Uh, much like the Martian surface, there are large obstacles, extreme terrain, um, ultraviolet radiation, really corrosive and abrasive, abrasive dust that is going to, um, over time, cause these, cause these vehicles to decay. So they need to be robust, and we need to be able to rely on them to survive long periods of time. But at the same time, they need to be highly specialised. So anything we build on Earth, those large... Um, 
harvesters you see in like ore mines all over the world, those are specialized to that environment. Much like the rover we've made is specialized to the Martian surface, if we send that to Mars, it's not going to last a very long time because it's specialized to the, to the human surface, to, to Earth, because we are simulating the Martian environment. So they need to be robust, specialized, some sort of mining capability, and autonomous. And luckily, these are the categories or the the tasks that are expected of all teams competing in the University Rover Challenge. So this was the competition rover that we sent over to America last year. Um, it is somewhat robust and somewhat specialised, but um, it was uh, done after a year's worth of progress. So on the top you can see the robotic arm, and that was the manipulator and end effector we used to sort of interact with the environment. And this was the scientific payload that we attached to the front of the rover. And although it's not specific to mining, it was, its main task was to look for biosignatures and to look if there was any um, presence of extant, so previous or ex, sorry, extant, which is currently living, or extinct life. Um, but it is transferable because we um, actually designed and built our own holostem auger, which the main goal of it was to look at um, lith lithostratic profile or just like how the soil changes over time and through that column we can determine how the environment has changed over time and also what sort of sedimentology, what sort of resources are available beneath the surface. Um, this was in one of the papers that we wrote for or concurrently by developing the system. Um, in the top two images you can see drill, uh, drill holes done by the Mars Curiosity rover and then in the bottom two holes are the, the ones that we made using the rover last year. And um, one of the things I like to do at talks is to say which one was made by the Mars rover, which one was made by our rover. Um, and it's exciting because sometimes people get it mixed up and you know, it's, it's, it's unique knowing that um, a bunch of students can make a technology that is um, rival, rivals sort of NASA's technology. And on the left you can just see the, the sort of different components that we used in the drill. Um, and yes, that is a hand drill that we sort of cut the handle off from Bunnings. Um, being a student team, you do need to be innovative and creative. Uh, we used a lot of zip ties and a lot of duct tape. So this was actually um, one of the student projects. Yes, do. So one of our students was actually developing a Raman spectrometer, which essentially uses light to learn about um, the different structural properties of different objects and the main goal was to put this Raman spectrometer on the rover and then give the rover a capability to determine what mineralogy was around it and from that you can look at different biosignatures such as um, uh, different minerals that form precipitously through water being there which means there's a possibility for life or you can of course transfer that to looking at um, different minerals that would be essential for mining and sort of developing an industry on the lunar or Martian surface. Um, then, of course, uh, going back to those four key points that I talked about, the rover does need to be autonomous, and if someone's um, required to drive the rover and make sure, oh, there's a big rock over there, I need to avoid it, the rover last year and this year, we've actually developed an autonomous protocol that it knows when it is about to go over a steep incline, it knows if it's about to hit a big rock, it is self-sufficient to some certain degree, um, and we can leave it uh, by itself and perform certain tasks. And of course, this is uh, the 2019 rover. Um, and if the teaser video wasn't enough, we are happy to pronounce that the 2019 system acceptance review video that all teams must submit to be considered for the competition, we submitted at uh, midnight, I believe. Um, 
nice little deadline. So if you would like to see more about the rover, hear more about all the different subsystems from science, electrical, autonomous, software, chassis, um, there's a five-minute video on YouTube. Don't check it out right now, but when you do have the time, just type in Nova Rover Team 2019 SAR. Um, just a quick little plug, we do have a website, Facebook and Instagram, so if you're feeling inclined, go ahead and check us out. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Unfortunately, the Nova Rover team from Monash University did not win the competition. It was in fact won by Impulse team from Kielce University of Technology, which is in Poland. We recorded that at Deacon Edge in March of 2019. I'm Andrew Rennie. This has been The Space Show.